Lots of corporate research effort goes into artificial intelligence and machine learning. But does what the top tech companies invest in coincide with national priorities for competitiveness and scientific leadership? That's what the Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology set out to discover. Joining me with some of the findings, research fellow Tim Huang. Mr. Huang, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on the show, Tom. So you set out to find out, first of all, what the leading tech companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, IBM, and a couple of others, actually put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, when it comes to artificial intelligence. And how were you able to find that out? So one of the most interesting things that we see is that people are always talking about AI this, AI that. And we always think about AI as kind of this really broad, vague category. And then one of the things we were really interested in exploring in this paper was, you know, specifically what are these labs researching in the field of AI? And the way we got to that was actually looking at their research publications, right? What their labs are uh, putting out into the world and using that as a way of inferring, you know, what their research agendas are. So this was a broad search of millions and millions of documents out there because there is a lot published on this, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the big sort of things that we want to learn a lot about is, you know, obviously there's a lot of research happening in the field of AI. You know, are the companies researching everything in that universe or only specific things, right? And really kind of understanding what the delta is between what they do and what the sort of field as a whole is. And you looked at the aggregate of these companies and found out that the top topic for them to put their money into and their research into is robotics and grasping. Grasping, I get, <laughs> given some of the companies here. But the uh, but, but you meant uh, machine robotics and so forth. Why would that... Uh, sure, right? as in a hand grasping, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and modeling of 3D shapes and image enhancement and so forth, which you can definitely understand. But what does this tell you? I mean, the companies, by the way, were IBM, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon clearly the top leaders here among them. And what does it say about them that that's so important to them? Yeah, what's really interesting for me in doing this research is, is really two points. You know, I think one of them is, not surprisingly, you know, it's, it's not like these companies are investing in AI for the good of humankind, right? They are very much kind of focused on products, right, and, and doing R&D to eventually support their products and services. And so I think a lot of what you see is in some ways not too surprising, right? They're, they're investing in a lot of things that help them do image understanding and search, but then also that there is a big investment in robotics because, you know, there's ultimately going to be a lot of money in that space. So, you know, I think what we see is a research agenda that is ultimately very driven by their business models, no matter kind of what they say more broadly. And do you have a similar type of count in terms of where the energy is going for artificial intelligence and machine learning from the public sector? Yeah, I think that's right. And and I, I think this is one of the things that, you know, the paper is really aiming to do is, you know, when we think about AI and AI companies, we think about the six companies that you just mentioned, right, that are the focus of the paper. But there's a lot of universities, there's a lot of labs, there's in fact a lot of other companies that are investing in different parts of the AI research field. And so I think in some ways our message to policymakers is to say, take a step back, don't get sucked into the hype, let's think about what we should be investing in as a country and trying to say, okay, are our partnerships pushing that forward, right, versus just kind of getting drawn into the fact that these are kind of the cool, hip AI companies. On the other hand, you could see where robotics and grasping modeling of 3D shapes images, coloring, lightning, enhancing, and so forth, these might be of interest Mm -hmm. to, say, the Defense Department or other missions that the federal government does have, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I guess I'm a pragmatist about these sort of things, right? I mean, I think the usefulness of these kinds of maps is the ability to say, okay, here's where our interests overlap and here's where we should be partnering. There's so many AI initiatives out there that are just like, we're going to put billions of dollars into AI, but they don't really talk about where that money is going. And I think we need to get a lot more specific if we want effective national strategy in the space. And just a detail question, one of the topics of importance to the corporate side is sparse matrices and representation. What is that exactly? Sure. Yeah. So this is getting a little bit into the weeds and kind of the nerdy aspects of this. But, you know, a lot of what happens in AI is that you're trying to teach a computer to understand a task. And in the field, that's known as a representation, right? What does the machine actually learn when you teach it that a, a cat looks like this or a dog looks like that, right? So there's a lot of work kind of in optimizing those algorithms, and that is actually what those topics refer to. Okay. We're speaking with Tim Huang. He's research fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. It strikes me that knowing where corporate research is aimed, that would probably direct some of the grant-making agencies, DARPA perhaps or National Science Foundation, in knowing where the dark spots might be, relatively speaking, in artificial intelligence. Right. I think that's exactly right is, you know, what we learn from this kind of analysis is that private enterprise is selecting a certain kind of research agenda, right? And I think ultimately what we need to ask is, okay, are those aligned with sort of the national interest? And to the extent that there is divergence, right, I think, you know, we want to think about these agencies, right, like DARPA, as gap fillers in the space to say, okay, well, maybe we need to find ways of encouraging more research on the places where the companies aren't looking because, frankly, it isn't very helpful for their product roadmap, for their services roadmap. And when the federal government funds research that can go directly into the public domain and software algorithms, for example, can go into open code, to what extent does corporate research end up in the public domain? Well, yeah, and I think this is one of the interesting things is we can only see what we see, right? And so our paper, you know, recognizes this. It's a limitation, like, in that the only research that we know that they're focused on are the things that they publish publicly, right? And that really is at the discretion of these companies. So I think that there are a lot of follow-on benefits for federal funding and public funding that you really don't get totally relying on these corporate labs to kind of drive your AI national strategy. I guess maybe one question is whether the results of what corporate labs do will be used internally or whether it will be used by, say, their vendors to develop new robotic systems, for example, just to make an example of robotics and Amazon. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that one of the interesting things to think about is these companies, needless to say, are not representative of the sort of institutions in society at large. So one of the things I point out in the paper, right, is, you know, a lot of the research that these companies are investing in assume that you have unlimited access to data, right? Now, I don't know, in a liberal democracy, you really might want AI to work, you know, in a way that's a lot more sort of privacy respecting, right, or or is able to do what it can do without collecting so much data, right? The companies are never going to invest in that because they already have all this access to data. So there's really kind of these basic things that may create divergences between sort of what we want out of technology um, as a society and, and what these companies are really investing in. Interesting. So what is your basic conclusion then in this study? It's not a really a long report. It's only 18 pages with some big charts. Oh, no, I mean, yeah. We want to keep it short and precise because I think the point that we're making is in some ways really intuitive, but we don't really talk about it in think tank circles or policymaking circles very much, which is you know, that we need to get a lot more granular and use these types of maps to guide sort of research strategy in this space. Because I think that you know, identifying these gaps is a really key way of thinking about AI 
you know, and getting away from kind of the early days of discussion about this, which really was, we just need to have the best AI, right? I think we're, we're now entering the period of trying to talk about, like, what exactly does that mean, right? And I think this kind of analysis is really key. And I wanted to ask you about one of the appendix charts, which is really interesting, top colleges and universities and counts of AI publications in dimensions as of mm-hmm. May 29th, 2020. First, let me talk about the colleges. Except for Carnegie Mellon University, they all seem to be Chinese. I mean, even Harbin Institute of Technology, most people never heard of the city of Harbin in China, but I think it's mm-hmm. got 10 million yeah. people. It's small for oh, China, oh, but yeah. it's really big. So what is that telling us, do you think? Yeah, what it's telling us is that a couple things, right? Like, I, I do think that there is a lot of research activity that's going on that, you know, almost never makes it into the kind of mainstream press in the U.S. And that's partially due to a language barrier. And I think in many ways does kind of limit our ability to do good strategic analysis in the space. Because I think even simple analyses like the one that we did in the paper do indicate that, you know, if we're measuring progress in the field just by raw number of publications, and now there's problems with that, of course, but if we just use that metric, it does indicate that we really got to put the pedal to the metal here if we want to keep up uh, from a national standpoint. And you cite a source called Dimensions. What is Dimensions? Dimensions is a database of research publications. It's really kind of our source for the analysis that we're doing here. And one of the reasons we like Dimensions is because it has this kind of more global coverage. It starts to help us get a little bit of a picture of, okay, what does the research landscape look like outside of the ones that we always hear about right here in the U.S.? It looks to me like it's a wake-up call for the U.S. academic field. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think one subtlety here, and there's a separate paper that I did about this, right, is that I would sound a note of caution on measuring sort of how successful we are based on just like the total number of publications, right? Anyone can throw a paper up online. And so I do think that one of the key things that we need to look into is thinking not just about sort of publication count, but also citations, like not only who's producing the most research, but who's producing the most influential research. And I do think a lot of these kind of what they call bibliometrics are going to be key as we sort of understand, you know, who is really kind of leading in this field. And and to the point of the paper that we've been talking about, you know, who's leading in what, right? Is it robotics and grasping that we're really leading in, you know, or or are the Chinese ahead on certain subfields within AI? And, And that subtlety is really important. So basically, you've raised a bunch of fresh questions about AI here. Yeah, I think we've just, uh, <laughs> there's always more questions uh, than answers, but uh, hopefully, you know, I think this perspective on these issues is an important one to bring into the mix as we kind of think about where, where we are going as a country on, on this technology. Tim Wong is a research fellow for the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. That's part of Georgetown University. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll post this interview together with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. 
Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy 
And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. 
I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.